Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for October 28, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm very happy to welcome you to this week's edition of our program, your source each Friday for insights from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate developments. This week's show regards a critical Proposition 47 appeal before the state high court and a Ninth Circuit ruling developing international and conflict of law doctrine. First, William Moranek, Deputy Public Defender for the County of Riverside, will join the show to chat about Harris v. Superior Court, which heard arguments before the California Supreme Court earlier this month and which will decisively impact the implementation of Prop 47, the 2014 measure that reduced certain non-serious felony crimes to misdemeanors and provided a resentencing mechanism for those serving time on those reclassified felonies. In Harris, the defendant and appellant was charged with a count of robbery, which carried a potential 15-year term before pleading to a lesser charge and receiving a six-year sentence. After Prop 47's passage, Harris's pled count was reclassified and he petitioned for resentencing after having served two and a half years in prison. Though conceding Harris was eligible for resentencing, the L.A. County District Attorney asked the court to essentially unwind the plea and allow the prosecution to try Harris on the robbery count that had been dropped pursuant to that agreement. The trial court granted the District Attorney's request, and a split court of appeal affirmed, since more than 90% of criminal prosecutions culminate in pleas, the result of this appeal will consequentially determine to what extent one of Prop 47's main purposes, that of clearing nonviolent offenders from state prison will be realized. Then, Professor Richard Marcus of UC Hastings College of the Law will visit to discuss the Ninth Circuit's ruling in Defont Brun v. Wolfsey, where French plaintiffs possessing the intellectual property rights to thousands of photographs taken of Pablo Picasso works of art sought to enforce a remedy in California court that had been rendered in their native country of France. The nature of the foreign remedy, called an estrent, caused some puzzlement in both the trial and appellate courts but a more essential quandary also was at play, namely whether the question of the remedy's nature was one of law or one of fact. The appellate panel, following settled if arcane federal rules, decided it was the former, a sensible result according to Professor Marcus, who will explain why the application of foreign law in U.S. courts is a more common occurrence than many realize and why it could become even more common. But first, and as always, I'd like to remind you that CLE credit is available for your having tuned into this program. Simply follow the link to a short true-false test that you can find on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Take that test, which corresponds to this episode, and one hour of CLE credit will be yours. With that, let's hear from Deputy Public Defender William Moranek. We're joined now by William Moranek, a Deputy Public Defender with the County of Riverside Public Defender's Office. You filed an amicus brief in this action in support of the petitioner and original defendant, Mr. Moranek. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you, and I'm glad to be here. So obviously a a very important case and and one of many challenges before the California Supreme Court dealing with implementation issues relating to Proposition 47. The question here seems a fairly critical one, whether essentially plea deals can be unwound as a result of successful Prop 47 petitions. Before we get into the meat of that question presented, let's go ahead and and talk about the petitioner here, the original defendant, Morris Glenn Harris. Could you tell me what he was originally charged with in this underlying action and and how he came to reach the plea agreement that's at issue here? Uh, Mr. Harris was originally charged um, with robbery, and that's a felony strike offense. He also had several prior convictions, including a prior robbery conviction that was obviously a strike offense and a five-year sentence enhancement for, for having a prior serious felony. So he was he was exposed to a maximum sentence of 15 years. Obviously, I I don't represent Mr. Harris. So I wasn't behind the scenes. I I don't know how the 
negotiations that went on to reaching the plea agreement. But the, the plea agreement itself was for a dismissal of the robbery charge and a, the addition of a new count that Mr. Harris pled to, and that was grand theft from a person. Um, that's a felony under Penal Code Section 487, Subdivision C. That's a non-strike offense. Obviously, that was a benefit to Mr. Harris, and he agreed to a six-year sentence for that, and everything else then was dismissed as part of the plea agreement. Um, so as we'll touch on a little bit more, and as seems to be important for the Court of Appeals here, the original potential exposure was 15 years, and Mr. Harris ends up with a, a six-year term to a account that is not a strike offense, and that was subsequently included in Prop 47's reclassification of certain nonviolent, non-serious felonies to misdemeanors. So after Prop 47 was passed, Harris had been in custody, I believe, for about two and a half years and petitions for resentencing on the count that he had pled to. At that time, the people agree that he is eligible for that resentencing, but they moved to to withdraw from the plea agreement they had, had reached, meaning essentially they could prosecute Harris and put him in jail for, for longer than the originally agreed upon six years if they could prosecute him for that original robbery count that they had dropped. So tell me, if you could, what uh, I guess the people's argument for why they should be able to undo that plea and what the trial court decided. Well, the, the people at the district attorney of Los Angeles in this case basically made an argument under contract law theory that they were denied the benefit of the plea bargain uh, because Mr. Harris had, in effect, repudiated, or their, their claim is that he had repudiated the plea bargain when he petitioned for resentencing, and hence they were entitled to have the original robbery count restored and, and have Mr. Harris returned to the status quo prior to the plea bargain itself, which meant he would have been subject to going to trial again on the original robbery count that was uh, filed against him. Now, the trial court, they, they granted the people's motion to, to unwind that plea deal. The defendant petitioned the Court of Appeal to, to take a look at whether that grant was was okay. But at first, the Court of Appeals didn't seem particularly interested in this issue, even though it, it certainly seems like an important one in terms of Prop 47 implementation. How exactly did uh, this case come to the attention of the, the Court of Appeal and eventually the Cal Supreme Court? The trial court and the, the Court of Appeal, in this case it was the Court of Appeal for the 2nd District Division 5, agreed with the DA's argument. So they denied the original petition, which it's worth noting, though, the original Court of Appeal, when they denied it, Justice Mosk went out of his way to say that he dissented to that denial um, of, of even hearing the matter and argued that in order to show cause or OSC should have issued. Mr. Harris then filed a petition for review to have the matter considered by the California Supreme Court. They, the California Supreme Court, then they granted the petition but transferred the case back to the Court of Appeal um, with the directions that they should, in fact, issue the OSC, quote, directing respondent court to show cause why the relief sought by Mr. Harris should not be granted. So that's how it ended up getting back to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal then issued a decision, which then, again, Mr. Harris petitioned for review to the California Supreme Court which the California Supreme Court subsequently heard and briefing was had and the matter was recently, on October 5th, it was argued before the California Supreme Court. Let's go ahead and dive in a bit to that intermediate appellate court's opinion um, once they decided to actually hear the case on the merits. A lot goes on in it. It's a split panel. Justice Mosk, as he said, he denied the summary writ petition denial. And uh, in this opinion, he issues a dissent, but the majority in affirming the trial court and and agreeing with the district attorney's point that the plea could be undone, they cite a 1978 case, the case of Collins, and said that it controlled the outcome here. 
Um, could you tell me a bit about that case and, and why, in the majority's opinion, it controls? People v. Collins basically held that a change in the law deprived the people of the benefit of the plea bargain. In that case, there were a whole slew of counts, actually 15 counts, including burglary counts, a couple forcible rape counts. But Mr. Collins actually ended up, through a plea bargain, ended up pleading to just a single count of non-forcible oral copulation. He was subsequently then found to be a mentally disordered sex offender, which meant that he wasn't sentenced at the time. You know, sentencing was put off. And while it was put off, non-forcible oral copulation was decriminalized. And so then when he was eventually brought back into court, Mr. Collins argued that the court was bound by the, the plea bargain and... Therefore, he couldn't be sentenced because the, the one count that he, he had pled to, the non-forceable oral copulation, was no longer an illegal act. The, the appeals court in Collins held that, in fact, the DA was entitled to reinstate all of the dismissed counts because, and I'm going to quote here, they said there was a change in the law that had, quote, destroyed a fundamental assumption underlying the plea bargain, that the defendant would be vulnerable to a term of imprisonment, end quote. And it's basically then they said that that deprived the people of the benefit of the bargain. The Court of Appeal looked at Collins and said that its, its holding should apply in, in this case, the Harris case, because Prop 47 destroyed a fundamental assumption of the plea bargain, i.e. that Mr. Harris would receive a six-year felony sentence. In the Court of Appeal case, then Justice Mosk dissented in saying that, that Collins doesn't govern, that Collins has to be limited to its facts, and that the facts in Collins were that the change in the law provided the defendant with total relief from vulnerability to the sentence. In other words, in Collins, he, he was getting off scot-free. In the Prop 47 case, Harris and, and other Prop 47 cases, there was just a change from a felony to a misdemeanor designation, and that's all. So therefore, Justice Mosk argued in his dissent that Collins didn't apply. Or in addition to distinguishing Collins from the present case, Justice Mosk also notes that even if Collins could be you know, on all fours, or even if Collins was on all fours with the current matter, its authority was sort of uh, superseded by a more recent case, Doe v. Harris. What was the, the holding there, and why does Justice Moss believe that it's more on point here? First of all, maybe I should give a little background on Doe v. Harris. That, as you said, was a much more recent case. It's from 2013. And and just so there's no confusion, uh, in, in Doe v. Harris, the Harris is Kamala Harris, uh, the, the attorney general for the state of California. So I'm just going to refer to that case as Doe to distinguish it from the case we're talking about, which is Harris. But in the Doe case, the court concluded that contract law principles applied to plea bargains where the state law changes the terms. So the state can come in and change the terms of a plea bargain, and it's still it's not violating any contract law principle if they do that. Just to give you the background in the Doe case, Doe obviously was an anonymous defendant, but he was charged with uh, 14 counts of lewd and lascivious acts upon a child under 14 years of age under former Penal Code Section 288A, and I believe that was the acts themselves. He was, he was the complaint was filed in 1991, so that was going back quite a ways. He pled nulla contendere to just uh, one of those counts, and the rest of the counts were dismissed. But as part of that count, there was a statutorily required sex offender registration. So he was required to, to, to do the sex offender registration. But back in 1991, sex offender registration was closed or private, meaning that, that he had to give information to the court and that it was distributed to you know, law enforcement agencies, but it wasn't made available to the general public. In 2004, Megan's law passed, and that changed that. It opened up sex offender registration so that the public could obtain names, addresses, and phone numbers of, of sex offender registrants. So at that time, Doe challenged the law on the ground that that change in the law breached the plea agreement 
because his understanding that it was that it wouldn't have been opened at the time. So the Doe Court, it, it did, a, it, you know, as I said, it, it announced the rule that the state can change the law for public policy reasons where it affects a plea bargain, and that that's okay. The state can do that. You know, the state's a party to the plea bargain. It's, you know, it, it is the people. And if they decide that they want to change a term of plea bargain, they can do that. Again, I'm going to read here. They, they stated a general rule that, uh, quote, plea agreements are deemed to incorporate the reserve power of the state to amend the law or enact additional laws for the public good and in pursuance of public policy. Then they went on to kind of apply that to that case, saying that there was an adjunct rule that, quote, a statutory consequence of a conviction does not generally translate into an implied promise the consequences will not attach. Prosecutorial and judicial silence on the possibility the legislature might amend a statutory consequence of a conviction should not ordinarily be interpreted to be an implied promise that the defendant will not be subject to the amended law. That sounds kind of convoluted, but what it's basically saying is that the courts aren't going to look at a plea bargain and imply that somehow the parties to that plea bargain were saying that if there was a change in the law, it wouldn't apply to them. The only way the courts are going to recognize that sort of thing is if the parties are explicit about that and say that as part of the plea bargain, we're saying that even if there's a change held to these terms of the plea bargain, that didn't happen in Doe and it didn't happen in the instant case either, in the Harris case. Now, in this case, Harris case, the majority in the Court of Appeal argued that Collins controlled because Doe didn't involve a negotiated term of a plea agreement, but rather a statutory consequence of a conviction. Justice Moss, though, in the dissent basically said, and I'm going to quote here again, there's no meaningful distinction in the context of this case between the statutory consequence of a plea agreed conviction as in Doe and a negotiated term of a plea agreement. Both involve the consequences of the plea agreement and the conviction resulting from it. It does seem like Collins and Doe are fairly similar, but come out different ways. Collins saying that the subsequent change in law after a plea is reached gives the you know, the people a right to pull out of that plea and prosecute the defendant for counts they would have dropped as a part of the plea. And, and Doe, obviously, the, the court holds quite differently, saying you know subsequent laws are they're part of the deal. You, you acknowledge that things might change, law might change. So it, it does seem like it's odd that the majority feels that those cases can coexist, even though they seem similar and are, are pointing different ways. Obviously, you say there's some distinction between the changes in law that occurred, but like you say, Justice Moss, doesn't seem like there's enough of a distinction there to have those two cases coexist. Right. And in fact, Justice Moss went so far as to say that Doe impliedly overruled Collins, saying that basically it, it, it covered all the ground that Collins covers, and therefore, even though it the Doe case hadn't explicitly pointed out the Collins case and said we're overruling it. It, in effect, did overrule it. Aside from legal precedent, it seems like the majority just has a problem with the difference between Harris's original potential prison exposure for the robbery count, 15 years, and what he his sentence would end up being if he is resentenced to a misdemeanor that pled count was reduced to, you know, something like a year in county jail or essentially, I assume, time served. How, how exactly does that concern sort of fit into their legal analysis, just the fact that it seems like there's some inequities here weighing against the people. And, and does Justice Mosk deal explicitly with the concern that a potentially long prison sentence ends up being a, a fairly short one? I would agree with Justice Moss that, that really there wasn't any kind of unjust outcome here, and for two reasons. First of all, the DA agreed to the charge actually pled to grand theft here. Now, 
the reasons that it agreed to the plea bargain are unknown and they're irrelevant. I mean, in, in every every single case where the district attorney is considering making a, a plea agreement, they have their reasons for making it. It may be that the evidence is weak. It may be that their caseload is big and they basically just want to get this out of the way. They, they don't want to do a lengthy trial. It can be any one of hundreds of reasons. The courts aren't going to look at those kind of reasons and there's no reason why they should. Because the bottom line is the district attorney agreed to look at this case, the Harris case, and say, we're not going to prosecute this person for a robbery, a strike offense. We're going to give you a deal where you plead to a grand theft instead. So they were willing to make that deal and reduce the crime to a grand theft. Right now, they're basically saying we want to go back to square one. But that brings us to the other part, the, the other reason why the, the outcome isn't just, and that's that it wasn't argued too much at oral argument, but it was argued in the briefing, specifically my briefing and the briefing from the, both the Public Defender's Office in Riverside County and the, the California Public Defender's Association. We looked at this as a contract law matter and said that the people, in fact, are getting the benefit of the bargain because they're the ones that passed Proposition 47. Under basic contract law principles, you have the people and then you have the district attorney's office, which, which fashions itself as the people, but they're actually an agent of the people. You know, so they may disagree with the outcome. The district attorney's office, in this case from Los Angeles, may disagree with the, you know, the outcome. But it's the people of the state of California that said, look, we're going to take these relatively low-level offenses and say that you know, we're going to allow resentencing on all of them, whether they were from a, resulted from a conviction or a plea bargain. That's explicit in section 1170.18, which was created by Prop 47. Uh, so the people of the state of California made the determination that it's to their benefit to allow that modification to the plea bargain. It's essentially they invited defendants to petition for modification of their sentence or of the plea bargain. And so in that sense, they are getting the benefit of the bargain because they've determined that it's in their interest to lower these offenses from felonies to misdemeanors, rather than insist that these people sit in prison for however many years under a felony offense with a relatively low-level, non-violent, non-serious offenses. Yeah, as you say, the, the terms of Proposition 47 do note that it applies in cases where not just a defendant was convicted at trial, but also where he entered into a plea, obviously the, the mm-hmm. circumstance in many, many criminal prosecutions. So seemingly the people in uh, the folks who wrote Proposition 47 foresaw that it could have an impact on on pleas that were reached. That impact would be, you know, certainly lowering the terms of those pleas in terms of the sentence. But you know, touching on that that point, the purpose of Proposition 47, the majority is not ignorant to that idea that it seems like reopening this case and potentially having the defendant go to jail for longer than the plea provided for seems to run counter to a proposition that was enacted to lower prison populations and and get folks that were convicted of nonviolent felonies out of jail. Why, in the majority's opinion, does their ruling not run counter to the purpose of the proposition? Well, as I said, I mean, their, their argument is basically that they're, they're looking at charge counts as if they were already convictions. You know, they're looking at the fact that he was charged with the robbery and saying, well, well, look, he's got this horrible crime, you know, robbery. Well, not necessarily horrible, but compared to simply grand theft. But that's not what really happened here. He was not convicted of robbery. He was originally charged with robbery. They themselves, the, the district attorney's office, 
made the decision as part of the plea bargaining process that they were willing to go down to a grand theft conviction on that. And then the people of the state of California said that, you know, we're looking at grand theft, specifically where it's involving an amount of $950 or less. And we're saying that's not a serious or violent offense. We're willing to reduce that to a misdemeanor. So it's hard to really buy the district attorney's argument that there's an unjust outcome here unless you consider charged offenses to be actual convictions. And that's not the case. All all defendants are considered innocent until proven guilty or or unless they've pled to that. And in this case, and in all similar Prop 47 cases, uh, those underlying charges were never pled to. They were simply dismissed as part of the plea bargain. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too, that the majority says, well, hey, this original count, the robbery, is not necessarily a, a nonviolent felony. So it's just not the sort of crime that the people really had in mind when they passed Proposition 47. But like you say, it's also not a count of conviction. You know, It was just a, a charge count. I, I agree with you on that. <laughs> I don't think I have anything more to add on that, on that point. Yeah, just teasing out the policy considerations a bit more, just as Musk mentions that the majority really could lead to absurd outcomes and Could you explain to me some of the absurd outcomes he might be envisioning based on this ruling, if it stands the California Supreme Court's review? First of all, I I should probably add that one of the things Justice Moss focused on, and rightly so, is that there's a policy that that once a judgment is final, it's final. That's the rule here. It's it's a common law rule, but it's the rule in California. And and the exceptions to that have to be statutory exceptions. So, for instance, there's an exception under uh, Penal Code Section 1170, Subdivision D, that a judge has a 120-day period after sentencing where he or she can modify that sentence. Even there, though, it's restricted to they can only modify it downward. In other words, they can take you know, a six-month sentence and make it a three-month sentence. They can make it a shorter sentence. But they only have 120 days to do that, and then they lose jurisdiction to do any more resentencing. Penal Code Section 1170.18, the section I mentioned that, that was created by Prop 47, that allows resentencing only upon a petition and only to a specified misdemeanor sentence. So only, you know, certain misdemeanor or certain sentences that have been redesignated as misdemeanors fit within that. The, the statutory authority that Prop 47 gave the courts to do resentencing is very, very narrow. But what the, the district attorney's office in Harris is asking is, is basically to reopen cases so that cases can be tried anew. That's far beyond the scope of anything that was contemplated by the voters when they passed Prop 47. There certainly was no discussion of, you know, that we can reopen these cases. Probably most of them are, are within one to five years, but many of them may be decades old even. And even if we're just talking a year or two, still you're looking at serious due process problems if a case after a period of years has to go to trial again. Witnesses may be lost, evidence may be lost or destroyed, you know, evidence that would have otherwise been preserved by the district attorney's office may be destroyed after, you know, after a length of time. And of course, obviously, memories fade too. So it becomes much harder to defend against the charge after years have passed, especially after years after a conviction where there's no reason to preserve evidence. The assumption on the part of any defendant would be that their case is over. There's no more need to keep in touch with witnesses, preserve evidence on the part of either the defendant or the district attorney's office. So then to come back and say we're going to retry these cases after you know this lengthy period, it creates a real due process problem, meaning that it creates at least the appearance, and I think in most cases, the actuality that, that the defendant isn't going to be able to receive a fair trial. So, you know, there would be a real injustice to do what the Court of Appeals' original decision suggested, which is, you know, allowing the 
the district attorney to to reinstate charges and and go back to trial on these cases. Somewhat less vital than um, due process considerations seem to be also judicial efficiency considerations. If the reason why so many criminal cases are pled out is because there's you know so so darn many of them, then reopening all those pleas based on Prop Forty Seven would seem like it would be a logistical nightmare and take quite a bit of time. Um, it's estimated that at least 95% of all cases in California are actually resolved through the plea bargaining process. Potentially 95% of the cases then that had the opportunity of defendants who had the opportunity to petition for Prop 47 resentencing are either being denied that opportunity, you know, would, would choose not to do it rather than, than risk having to go back to trial, or they're going to be going back to trial again you lose all the benefits that Prop 47 was intended to deliver. You're not reducing prison overcrowding. And as you said, as a matter of judicial economy, let alone due process rights, um, you're really creating a nightmare that where it may end up actually, if you're bringing these cases back to trial, it may end up costing more than, than otherwise would have been spent. In other words, Prop 47, a measure that was designed to save money for the, the state of California and reduce prison populations might end up actually costing more. And that's, you know, clearly defeating the whole underlying purpose of Prop 47. Justice Musk's concerns and on those different grounds seem to be shared by at least a, a handful of the justices of the California Supreme Court. To the extent that you're able to, to take a listen to the oral arguments here, how would you summarize the way the, the court seems to regard this appeal and the potential problems that upholding the, the current result could precipitate? It has been a while since I, I listened to the oral argument, um, so I, I can't attribute specific justices, but, but the sense I got was that there was a real concern on behalf of justices that the, the Court of Appeals opinion, if, if they left it standing, it would basically defeat the revenue raising and, and prison reduction goals of Prop 47. And also just, I think there were real practical concerns they had too, in terms of would it be possible to assess whether a, a sentence or term of imprisonment was a, a bargain for term that's going to be difficult at best. Um, you know, obviously, in every case, there's a sentence. Whether that was integral to the bargain or not is difficult, if not impossible, to say. It's that's something that's you know there, there may be. You know, in this case, there was a six-year term. Whether that was something that would have been the end of the deal if they had been told that you no, know, that at some point this is going to be reduced to misdemeanor or not, is hard to determine in that case, and and maybe even harder in other cases where the sentence might have been less. Basically, I think they were of the realization that it's impossible to come up with a real bright line rule that's going to fairly allow some plea bargains to be rescinded and dismissed counts reinstated, while fairly also denying that opportunity for the district attorney to do that in other cases. So perhaps there is really no sort of middle ground here where they could say, well, in certain instances, it seemed particularly inequitable certain pleas could be reopened. It would just sort of lead to a fair amount of questions and and a lot of judicial head scratching below us to where exactly you would draw the line as to what which ones would be reopened and which ones wouldn't. I would agree. I, I don't think there is any real realistic middle ground that could be reached in here because I mean, as far as assessing the strength of each case, that's something that the DA did at the time of the plea bargain. That was their time to do that. But it's important to keep in mind that when you're assessing the strength of a given case, that's going to change with time. Now here we're talking about a case that's two going on three years now have passed. And in other cases, it may be much longer. So, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, you may have the loss of evidence. You may have, you know, obviously you're going to have to some extent loss of memory and you may have the loss of witnesses too. 
so the strength of the case can change over time. So it's it's really impossible to get this sort of middle ground that's going to keep everyone happy. But again, I think the important point to remember here is that as far as that goes, that's 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 a bargain that the people of the state of California made. They said that we're we're willing to make these modifications to the plea agreement because it benefits us because we get uh, a revenue benefit from it and we get a reduced prison population too. So while the change in the law, Prop 47, may have had an impact on some of these individual cases, in the aggregate, it clearly benefits the state to implement Prop 47 as it was intended to be implemented, which is, which is to say broadly, applying it to, to all Prop 47 petitioners, regardless of whether their sentence was a result of a plea bargain. Perhaps raising just one last policy consideration, is there any chance that prosecutors now in the future could sort of hedge their plea bargains, perhaps make them less favorable to defendants or with the thought that potentially, you know, a change in law or that um, certain other felonies could be lumped into Prop 47 or something like that, uh, such that the plea deals might end up being lowered by those subsequent changes? I, I don't think that's a real worry. Um, you know, first of all, the resources of the, the court system just aren't such where the district attorney's offices throughout the state could really afford to, to take every single case to trial. I, I don't think that's something that's likely to happen. I, I, plea bargaining is a useful tool, and it will remain a useful tool, regardless of, of how this case is decided. Perhaps one last one, if you had to, to guess based on the, the various factors here and the oral arguments from earlier this month, how might you see this case coming down? I'm not going to get into the minds of the individual justices, but I think the overall sense that I got from listening to oral argument was that they, they were for reversing the, the Court of Appeals opinion, and, and I certainly hope they will. I mean, I, to me, it seems like the only reasonable decision on their part. It's it's the only decision that really is going to further the interests of the, the people of the state of California, as they determined when they adopted Prop 47. You know, it's the intent of the people that they're going to reduce prison overpopulation and save money by reclassifying these relatively low-level offenses as misdemeanors and and then reapplying those funds to programs to reduce crime further. In order to receive that beneficial effect, I think really that um, I, I think it would be very helpful for the court and I, and I think reasonable for the court to overrule the, the Court of Appeals decision and to hold that, in fact, just because a, a sentence was reached by plea bargain doesn't mean that person petitions for Prop 47 resentencing that they're somehow rejecting that plea bargain. They've been invited by the state, by the people of the state of California to petition for Prop 47 resentencing. And it seems like the only reasonable conclusion is that they are not, in fact, somehow rejecting the plea bargain when they simply accept the state's invitation to ask for a modification of the plea bargain. Bottom line is, I think the, the Supreme Court will do the right thing and hopefully first the Court of Appeal decision. Certainly, we'll, we'll find out soon enough here in the next few weeks, as this case was argued a few weeks ago in the California Supreme Court. Mr. William Moronek of the Riverside County Public Defenders, thanks very much for being on the podcast to talk about it with us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. One more time, that was William Moronek. Deputy Public Defender for the County of Riverside, speaking about the case of Harris for Superior Court. We'll move now to my chat with Professor Richard Marcus from UC Hastings College of the Law regarding the case of DeFont Brun v. Wolfsey, 
We're joined now by Professor Richard Marcus, a distinguished professor of law and Horace O. Coyle Chair in Litigation at UC Hastings College of the Law, where he teaches civil procedure, complex litigation, and evidence. Professor Marcus, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. An interesting case here, it's fairly infrequent that the podcast gets to regard issues of great works of art and obscure French terminology, so we're happy to do it here with you. Those uh, issues are intersecting here with uh, copyright law and issues of international law. The case seems to center around copyrights for, for thousands of photographs that were taken of works of art by Pablo Picasso. Those photographs came to be in the possession of a Monsieur Yves Secret de Fontbrun, whose uh, heirs are the, the plaintiffs here, and we'll go ahead and just call them the plaintiffs. Good the plaintiffs call. here. Can you tell me how the plaintiffs here ended up in court in France filing suit against the defendant here, Alan Woussy? Well, the plaintiff acquired the intellectual property rights to this huge collection of photos uh, in about 1979, and around 20 years after that, assertedly, Wolfsey not only used those photos in a book, but then went to a Parisian book fair and offered the books for sale, which I will guess is the reason that the French courts regarded themselves as having jurisdiction, because the plaintiff sued Wolfsey in France for violating his copyright, and in 2001 obtained a judgment for that finding that he had infringed, um, awarding 800,000 French francs, which I think were about five francs to the dollar then, and also imposing an estrent of 10,000 French francs per proven violation of uh, this judgment. And then things seemed to have been calm for, or at least there was no further litigation activity for about 10 years. But in 2011, uh, the plaintiff went back to the French court and sought payment of 2 million euros, which sounds like if you were doing it by what we were told the estrangement would be, about uh, 1,000 proven violations. Um, and uh, the French court entered... Uh, a judgment uh, for that amount in 2012, leading to a lawsuit in state court in California seeking to domesticate the judgment and enforce it. That was removed to federal court, and that led to the judgment that was appealed to the Ninth Circuit. Okay, now, and I can elaborate what happened in district court, too, if that would be helpful, because that was kind of a merry-go-round. The defendants moved, defendant or defendants moved to dismiss for failure to state a claim. Uh, submitted, in, among other things, a, a declaration from a French legal expert about what estraint is because the defendant said it was a penalty or a fine and therefore not subject to enforcement here under a California statute dealing with enforcement of foreign country judgments. Um, the district judge at first said, I can't look at that because it isn't part of the complaint um, and denied the motion and then did an about face and said, well, sure, I can look at that. And I'll look at the one, the affidavit declaration submitted by the plaintiff also. Um, and after looking at those, the district judge decided that uh, you couldn't enforce that French judgment in California and granted the motion to dismiss, which is what led to the appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Before we get too much further, in your own words, could you describe a bit more what this 
particular French remedy is the estrant. Obviously, that the appeal turns a bit on what the appellate panel thinks the estrant is, but uh, just sort of generally, what uh, what sort of remedy is this? Well, I admit to having paid very little attention to it until I started looking at this case. It, it appears to be uh, somewhat chameleon-like. It varies significantly in different settings. Um, there's a fair amount of literature about how it can accomplish something like the American remedy of specific performance of a contract because French law apparently doesn't authorize relief of that sort against private parties on behalf of private parties. So it is a way for the judge to say, you must do what I am telling you to do because if you don't, you have to pay this amount of money per day or per violation or per something. Um, in another sense, it's like uh, an American remedy uh, for contempt that's called coercive civil contempt. Uh, they can actually put somebody in jail until he obeys the court's order, which is different from uh, criminal contempt, where you get a fixed fine, and also from compensatory contempt, where the plaintiff gets a monetary award in compensation uh, with the coercive contempt, the idea is uh, you have the keys to the jailhouse in your pocket, all you have to do is obey, or maybe we'll say you have to pay X dollars per day until you obey. So those seem to be the comparisons that we have at home, and that appears to be the reason that this exists under French law. Yeah, as you say, somewhat chameleon-like, it's no wonder that the, the district court perhaps struggled a little bit to get a good sense of what exactly the remedy was. Now, the plaintiffs sought to domesticate this judgment, the estraint in U.S. court, by virtue of the California Uniform Recognition Act. Can you tell me just a little bit about that act? Well, this is the Uniform Foreign Money Judgment or Judgment Act. It relates to uh, the enforcement of judgments from other countries, principally. And it reflects something that's generally true in choice of law uh, situations that one state or country will not enforce the criminal laws of another country or a judgment based on them um, and will not enforce the tax laws of another country. That's not involved in our case. But what it says is that a fine or penalty in a judgment from another country is not enforceable under the act. Uh, this is a uniform act that is sort of uniform. It comes from the uniform law commissioners, and it's apparently been adopted in 18 or 19 or 20 other states in addition to California. Just as a bit of an aside, could you tell me the reasoning undergirding that line drawing where certain types of judgments would be domesticated and enforced, but other ones fines or penalties would not be enforced by American courts? I think the underlying notion is that we don't collect another country's taxes, not the issue here, and we don't enforce another country's criminal law. Now, we do often have extradition treaties with other countries who may desire that we send someone there to be tried for violation of that country's criminal law. Uh, and so that might be a way around 
um, the limitation on doing that in our own courts. But it is a very long-standing rule of conflicts of law that our state does not enforce your criminal law. Here, the the facts are relatively unique, and certainly French law is somewhat rarely encountered in in U.S. courts. But if you broaden out the perspective a little bit in this case and take a look at how it might implicate other areas of law, are there there ways in which the question about this one particular French remedy could, could bear upon say, broader themes or, or more regular or recurrent questions that come up in American courts? Well, from a law professor's point of view, this is a high theory kind of thing that I'll get around to in a minute. But it, although estreinte seems to be a distinctive, not only name, but French um, provision, the same kind of issues could readily arise in lots of other settings, say, a judgment about... Uh, an American company's supposed contamination of harbors in Europe or something like that might produce a court ruling that it would have to stop doing what it was doing or pay uh, some additional or daily amount. So I, I think just on that very narrow possibility, this case offers a model for California federal courts at least and probably state courts as well, to decide what under the California Act is really enforceable here. Um, Taking a step a little further back, another thing that we can see is that the whole treatment of this as a question of law under Federal Rule 44.1 seems still to lead to potential confusion in some courts. This court in this case seemed initially to think Uh, It was supposed to be approaching the question of French law in the same way it would approach a question about whether the plaintiff or the defendant had the green light. Um, And that's why the judge said at first, I can't look at these declarations from the French law experts because um, that would be improper on a motion to dismiss under 12b-6. The appellate court makes it quite clear that that's not correct. And so it seems the the avenue in federal court for challenging the enforceability of a judgment uh, of this sort is by a motion to dismiss. And then finally, the true law professor point is the the number of situations in which you can say an American court is applying foreign law is a lot bigger than the frequency of efforts to enforce a judgment entered by another country in this country. Um, According to the choice of law specialists, any state which under its own choice of law rules is applying the law of another state is applying foreign law. Um, And it has often the same kind of problem figuring out what exactly the law of, say, North Dakota means if we're supposed to apply it here in San Francisco. And the uh, most fervent followers of that in academe even say that a federal judge in San Francisco applying California law is applying foreign law because it's the law of a different judicial system. Um, the Claxon case in the Supreme Court 70 years ago said that's what federal judges had to do, um, and they do it all the time. But they don't think that it's peculiar there. It only begins to look peculiar when they're trying to figure out the law of France instead of North Dakota. 
As you touched on there, when the court begins to try to analyze what sort of remedy the estrent is, it's dealing, as the appellate panel said, with a, a question of law and not a question of fact. Um, could we unwind a little bit more what in theory or in practice would be the difference between those alternatives regarding it as a, a question of law or fact, specifically in, in this context of dealing with foreign law, either from outside of a forum or from a different country? Maybe a, one thing to start with is that because it is a question of law, it d receives de novo review on appeal. That's what the Ninth Circuit did in this case. If it were a question of fact, you'd have a much fuzzier role for the appellate court. After a court trial, a finding of fact made by the court is subject to uh, reversal or questioning under a clearly erroneous standard that's much less exacting. Um, a, a second difference would be that maybe someone imaginative enough could persuade a judge that there's somehow a right to jury trial on these questions of fact, if it's a case in which a jury might otherwise be uh, validly impaneled. Um, and I think that most judges should stop that in its tracks, that kind of argument, because after all, we aren't going to ask the jury to decide whether the law of North Dakota or California applies to the case. The judge will make that decision in framing the instructions. So I, I think probably there are lawyers and judges out there who still regard the resolution of disputes about the meaning of foreign law as something that is more suitable for factual analysis and uh, maybe even for some kind of discovery, though it's hard to imagine what that would be. Uh, all of those things would tend to complicate and draw out litigation that this decision by the Ninth Circuit shows should be pretty straightforward. It may involve difficult legal questions, but it shouldn't involve all the other paraphernalia of factual disputes in ordinary cases. As you say, the upshot of this ruling is that the courts can take a fairly straightforward approach to, to doing some of their own research on questions of foreign law or foreign judgments. And as you've touched on a bit, that, that isn't so much different from how they might regard a law from North Dakota, a, a, a court in, in California. So is there really not so much difference between what the, the court is doing here with French law and what other courts might be doing with laws from other forms? It just seems like it's slightly more convoluted because it's uh, a judgment with a, a funny name from a foreign country? And that sounds right to me, and I guess I'd illustrate it with uh, an insight I got from spending a summer not in North but in South Dakota. All California lawyers are familiar with looking in the California annotated codes, say the civil code, and finding that there's a section with you know, section such and such has uh, three subparts, and each one of them is... You know, three or four sentences long, and so that might occupy one printed page. And before you get to section X plus one, the next section, you're likely to find 30 to 100 pages of annotations. That's not the way it is in the South Dakota annotated code. So if you think everywhere in the U.S. you're going to find um, such abundant local judicial authority on what uh, a section in the code means, um, actually, I think you're not going to find that much in too many places. And the judge there, as with 
French authority may be casting about for guideposts that aren't easy to locate. And so it would seem like conducting lots of discovery to go look for that um, sort of information and those factual bases would potentially be less fruitful than one might one might assume. Beyond that, I'd say discovery just doesn't seem to be designed to do what we're talking about here, uh, particularly with online access now. Um, in essence, the lawyers and the judge can go to the online law library and read the materials that are available there. Um, and the, well, a feature of this comes up for lawyers when the moving party on something uh, cites cases one, two, and three and say they show I win. Uh, then the opposing party cites cases four, five, and six and says, no, those show you're wrong and I win. And the judge, uh, somewhat uncertain how to evaluate these arguments, goes out and finds cases um, seven, eight, nine, and ten and says, well, actually, these are the ones that seem most instructive and I'm therefore going to decide in accord with what they say. Um, now, if they're all in French, it gets a little bit more complicated. And if they're from a, a civil law instead of a common law system, it is further complicated by that. Uh, I, I think that none of that is discovery, on the other hand. Um, producing declarations from experts is something that lawyers seem to like to do a lot, uh, sometimes in situations where it's hard to think it's appropriate, like, should this class action be certified? I know lots of law professors who do declarations and affidavits to persuade judges that this case should or should not be certified as a class action. And it strikes me that that's the judge's decision. And what law professors have to offer there is, at best, nothing more than what you could find in the library. So then here, it is the judge's decision what the nature of the estrenta is. The, the panel can regard it as a question of law to determine whether it can be enforced or whether it's a penalty or a fine that would not be enforceable by an American court. What um, was their conclusion as to the nature of, of the estrenta in this case? The bottom line conclusion was that the district judge was wrong to think that this should be classified under the California Act as a uh, fine or a penalty. Um, and it looked at uh, a California Court of Appeal case called Java Oil for a standard that uh, asks whether the purpose was to compensate an individual or to punish an offense against the public, whether it was payable to the individual or a state organ, whether it arose in the context of a civil action or through the enforcement of penal laws, and whether it was a mandatory fine, sanction, or multiplier. Well, the last of those um, sounds like it might go either way, but I think a, a useful contrast for interpreting this, or discussing the interpretation of the same uh, California statute is the Yahoo case from about 10 years ago involving Yahoo's effort to get a, an American injunction declaring that no American court would enforce a French court's directive based on French law forbidding uh, the sale of Nazi-era memorabilia. And the analysis made there of this same act was that that judgment would be rejected on the ground that it really was a fine or a penalty. Um, it, it 
It was premised on a French criminal statute regarding uh, marketing of Nazi-era memorabilia. The argument made by the civil plaintiffs was that uh, they were seeking uh, to stop something that was a crime in France that was giving people access via Yahoo to these materials, which could be purchased online. And the payment that was imposed there was quite huge, thousands of dollars a day for failure to stop access from France. Um, and the payment was to be to the French state. The people who brought the lawsuit got nothing. Now, in our case, the, the claim is premised on uh, a copyright sort of legal protection, which belongs to the individual who owns the copyright. The money is to be paid to the individual. Uh, it's not exactly clear, but it seems as though the amount to be paid is uh, related to the number of violations. It's not um, totally unknown in American law to say that in some instances where the harm uh, by certain behavior is hard to monetize, put a value on, uh, we may say we'll simply use some sort of flat fee, if you want to think of it that way, per violation. So what this judgment in our case did in France was something like that in advance uh, as a way of encouraging compliance with the French court's decree that uh, this infringement should stop. Um, so if you think about that in terms of the criteria that the California uh, case interpreting the California statute says matter, um, these are very different situations, and probably the Yahoo case is unusual, whereas as we go forward, it's, there's a fair chance that we will see more non-U.S. judgments involving commercial-type arrangements where somebody will say the label put on that in the other country shows it's a penalty, and what this decision says is you don't just rely on the label. You look at those specifics the California court has defined as controlling. Okay, that leads to my last question then. Um, aside from the defunct runs, being duly remunerated for their intellectual property that was used without their permission. What are the biggest takeaways from this ruling? Well, as I said a moment ago, the number of times when something of this general sort could happen is probably going to go up unless globalization suddenly gets turned around and starts moving backward. Um, and maybe we'll learn more about that in our presidential election this year, but the general betting is that it, it may not move forward as fast as some would like, but it's probably not going to go backward. Um, in terms of questions of law, questions of fact, uh, the, the federal rule for 50 years has said what we're talking about in terms of determining the content of uh, non-U.S. law is a question of law uh, for some reason of odd habits or inattention or something else, that message has not gotten through to everybody. And this decision is another uh, reminder that that's what's true. Uh, the reality will also probably be that there, if I am right that there is going to be an increased frequency of reference to foreign law, 
um, it is going to create a market for law professors in France and Germany and Argentina and other places to be uh, offering their services uh, for litigants uh, who need this kind of material to submit to American judges. But just as a footnote to all that, the, the U.S. has for a long time offered the services of its courts in a different way for the resolution of foreign disputes. If, as you may know, uh, U.S. discovery is pretty much unique in the world. Um, as you may not know, there's a statute that says anybody who has a, an action pending in a non-U.S. tribunal can use U.S. discovery to gather evidence for that action. So these two things together may mean that Litigants can come here increasingly frequently to get evidence that's hard to get or impossible to get where the case is pending, go back and get a decision in the case partly based on that evidence, and then bring the judgment back here to enforce it if there are assets of the defendant in the U.S. Well, I'm sure those concerned with judicial efficiency will be slightly distressed to know that perhaps there'll be even more cases on the, the court's dockets. But uh, for now, the copyrights for these Picasso photographs are safer. And uh, Professor Richard Marcus, thanks very much for being on the podcast to talk about the developments here in appellate law. Many thanks for the opportunity. And with that program for October 28th, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests, William Moranek and Richard Marcus. I'd like to thank you as well, our listener, for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget that one hour of CLE credit can be yours for having listened. Just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Thanks go also to members of my production staff here, including Dominic Fracasa, Nicholas Sonnenberg, Helen Enriquez, and of course, our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>